Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, the third gospel, third book of the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to use one of the ones that you can find in the chair rack in front of you. If you're visiting with us this morning for the first time or maybe for several times, it's generally our custom a vast majority of the time to take a book of the Bible and to work through it pretty much verse by verse, chapter by chapter. We have been doing that for quite some time and just recently finished up the letter to the Romans. And for the balance of this summer, for the next four or five weeks, we're going to look at some individual texts and encourage ourselves, Lord willing, in those texts. And then um, once school gets back in, Lord willing, we plan to start a shorter Old Testament prophet. And so I'm looking forward to that. We've got a few that we're thinking about and praying about, but we'll get into that. But this morning, I want us to look at Luke chapter 18 and verses 1 through 8 in this parable of the persistent widow. And I've entitled this message, How to Not Lose Heart. I think that if you could add up all of the conversations and pastoral counseling sessions that I've had over the past 14 years since we started this church and a few years in pastoral ministry on staff at another church before that, I think that the vast majority of pastoral conversations that I've had with people have been about people that are struggling with discouragement. We live in a broken world that is, that is against Christ and His gospel. We are at spiritual war. The, this place, this world that we live in is not neutral. And we live in a unique time in redemptive history between the two comings of Christ, where He came once as a lamb to bear the sins of His people, And where then he promises again to come in the future as a lion, whereby he will finally and fully vanquish all of our foes. Even though the victory has been won, Christ has reconciled his people, sin has been defeated, the penalty of sin has been defeated, the presence of sin and the presence of evil is still with us. And this causes God's people to often be discouraged, to lose heart. And so Jesus in Luke chapter 18 is very aware of that. In fact, in the preceding chapter, in Luke chapter 17, he was teaching about his second coming, about how it would be as it was in the days of Noah, and there would be this suddenness, and that he would come like a thief, and that he would come and finally and fully vindicate his people. But he realizes that that time is in the future and that his people are living now. And so he, in Luke chapter 18, offers this parable with the express purpose. In fact, Jesus tells us the purpose of the parable right at the beginning, that his people would always pray and not lose heart. So with that, let's let's look at and read verses 1 through 8 of Luke chapter 18. I'm going to break this passage down into just two two thoughts, two two divisions. First, we're going to look at the parable, 
what Jesus is saying in this short story and then the point of this parable. And parables are just fabricated, made-up stories that Jesus is offering to make a spiritual point. So we're going to look at the parable and then the point. Let's read verses 1, 1 through 8 of Luke chapter 18. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's pray. Father, your word is truth. Sanctify your people by your truth, I pray. And as we have already prayed earlier in the service, for our friends that are here that do not know you, Lord, would you open up their hearts? Would you give them what only you can give? Would you save them? Would you call them out of darkness into light so that they can trust and believe in Jesus and be saved? And for the rest of us, Lord, that know you, strengthen us, Lord, fortify us with this passage. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. First, I want us to look at the story, the parable. What, what is this? What are the nuts and bolts of this text? And so we should consider the characters. First, let's look at this judge that there's only just a few descriptions. There's really just one description of him in verses 2 that he then repeats in verse 4. But, but what type of man are we dealing with in this judge? He was a self-confessed, wicked, and selfish man. Jesus tells us about the condition of his heart. He says that he was proud and arrogant. And he was very likely not the type of religious judge like the, the Pharisees that would, would determine interpretations of the Old Testament law. This was more of, think of like a, a civil court judge where he would decide disputes amongst the people of Israel. But he was arrogant. He, he essentially was shaking his fist at God, saying, I don't have any fear of you. I don't care anything about these people. I can do whatever I want. And what makes him so despicable is that he was a man of authority, and yet he abused authority. And that is particularly onerous in the eyes and nostrils of heaven, because God is our ultimate authority. And when authority, as God's image bears, as we twist authority, it mars people's ability to see God truly and so misused authority. God has a particular distaste for it we see in the scriptures and this man was a personification of it. He was the exact opposite 
of what a judge in Israel should have been. In fact, we see in the Old Testament when this king Jehoshaphat was the king of, of Judah and he was appointing judges in Judah, we see a description of what a judge should have been like. In 2 Chronicles chapter 19, verses 5 through 9, listen to this description from Jehoshaphat of what he desired in the judges of God's people in the Old Testament. It says in verse 5 of 2 Chronicles 19, He appointed judges in the land and all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city, and said to the judges, Consider what you do, for you judge not for man but for the Lord. He is with you in giving judgment. Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God or partiality or taking bribes. Moreover, in Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat appointed certain Levites and priests and heads of families of Israel to give judgment for the Lord and to decide disputed cases. They had their seat at Jerusalem, and he charged them, verse 9, Thus you shall do in the fear of the Lord in faithfulness and with your whole heart. So you see this description of what he should have been like, according to this passage in 2 Chronicles, And you see this description of what he was actually like. A man who neither feared God nor respected people. Why this description of this judge? Why in making up this parable did Jesus take care to give such a harsh description of this judge? I think it's for the purpose of setting up this scene to show the unlikeliness of justice for the widow. This judge was the unlikeliest of candidates to give this widow any justice. In essence, this widow is facing an impossible situation. One commentator said about her plight that this widow is making an appeal for justice, and if she's doing so before this kind of judge, she has a zero chance of justice. And that's what type of man she finds herself in front of. A man who cares nothing about those who are vulnerable. A man who is caring nothing about the plight of this widow who is very vulnerable in this first century culture. So that's the judge. What about the widow? Well, we need to understand the vulnerability of widows in the first century to understand the the predicament, the despair that this woman is in. Certainly in any culture, widows are often in a difficult situation, but more so even in the first century. In fact, the Old Testament law is full of specific admonitions written into God's law about how God's people were to care for widows and orphans and sojourners because God has a particular heart for people that are vulnerable. They're close and near to God's heart. And and a widow, in particular in biblical times and in the first century, would have been very vulnerable physically. She would have been very vulnerable financially. She would have had no man to protect her in these areas. And so she was vulnerable to those who would take advantage of her. In fact, a couple chapters over in Luke chapter 20, when Jesus is upbraiding the religious leaders of his day, one of the things that he, he chastises them for is how they take, they take advantage of, of widows. He says in Luke chapter 20, verse 46 and 47, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. 
maybe if Jesus was writing that today, he would say, beware of those religious leaders who brag on social media about how awesome they are. Verse 47, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So we see there God's heart for vulnerable people, in particular, in this sense, widows, because he's saying those that take advantage of widows will receive a greater condemnation. We think of modern, modern examples in our day. Think about, think about just like, this is so wicked. Doesn't it just make you want to um, do physical things to people? When you hear about like phone scams that target elderly people, you know, to trick them into giving, you know, their life savings. I mean, that, that'll make you, that'll make you, that'll turn you into a felon real quick. Or, or you think about even just these charlatan preachers sometimes that you see on TV that are bilking, you know, old widows out of their savings accounts, asking them to send them money and promising them some sort of financial windfall or blessing. And this widow in this first century was even more vulnerable than a widow in our day because she had no one to protect her. And what was her situation? We really don't have many details about her situation. We can assume, and we can only assume, that it was maybe a financial situation that we found, she found herself in, and possibly it was related to the death of her husband. Again, we don't know this. We're just surmising this. In the first century culture, there was often a prenuptial agreement that a, a woman would enter into with her husband and his family so that if he passed away and she became a widow, that the family of the husband had to honor this prenuptial agreement. And there was a, a kind of sum of money that was like a payoff, in a sense, to the widow, and they had to give her sort of shelter, room, and board until they could meet this sum, and then they were released from their obligation to care for this widow. So maybe, again, we're just surmising here, maybe there was a dispute between her and her in-laws about whether or not they were fully meeting the needs of this prenuptial agreement between her and her husband. Again, we do not know, but we know that she is in a dire situation, and we know this because what jumps out to us about this text is this widow in her persistence and her boldness. Consider the typical court scene of, of, of first century Palestine culture. It's not an orderly setting. It's not like you're going down to the government center and there is a Muscogee County Sheriff or a bailiff there keeping order in the court. Rather, this is a chaotic scene, this, this civil court where people are shouting and pushing and trying to get to the judges of the day. And the person who had the loudest voice was often heard. So she had to be the shrillest. She had to be the most energetic. She had to be the most noticed, the most aggressive to, to, the most aggressive to be noticed. And she had to, as the text says, keep coming. This wasn't just one day. She kept coming. And her cry, her request was, vindicate me. I'm helpless, and you, judge, are my only hope. 
Think about, put yourselves in the shoes of this woman that she, as a first century woman, would disregard any sort of social norm that would push her down. She is in such a place where she has nothing else to depend on. Her only hope is that maybe in mercy this wicked judge would show mercy on her and be kind. And to get his attention, to communicate to him the seriousness of her situation, she is casting off anything that shackles her and she is going after it with boldness and persistence and intensity. Now let's pause to consider a possible application regarding this widow's persistence and grit in our lives. Now in just a moment, we're going to talk about the point of this parable. I don't think, actually, that the primary point of this parable is that we should look at this widow and say, oh, we need to be like the widow. I don't think that's the primary point of this passage, this parable. That we should pester God until He gives in to us. I think it's not primarily about reaching down deep inside for more sort of spiritual tenacity and umph. But I do think that is an application, that is an example that we see, and it's something that we can learn. So although it's not the primary point of this parable, I think it is something that we can see and be chastened by. And I think in our culture, we, we in particular can learn something from this widow in that regard because we oftentimes are spiritually apathetic, aren't we? We, we live in a culture where there are so many means at our disposal that very few American Christians ever find themselves in such a point of desperation that they need to get to this place emotionally or they die. And that produced in this, this woman a kind of intensity that I, 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 I am chastened by. I am. And again, not the main point of the parable, but I do think a valid application in our lives that, that we should be chastened by and exhorted by the, the, the word that I like is just grit. Just I think we need more grit in our culture. People that are willing to grab a hold of, of going after God and, and pleading with God to, to move on their behalf, to to be the righteous judge in this situation and to not give up 30 seconds into prayer to check Facebook or, 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 or scroll through Instagram or, or, or look at the TV. I mean, our attention spans are like lab rats on crack. Are they not? And so I want to be, ch I'm chastened by this woman and her her spiritual grit and her dependence and her hope, her, her, her putting all of her eggs in this one basket. And what do we see in, in verses 4 and 5, the, the judge's response? Look at, let's read it again, verses 4 and 5. For a while he refused, but afterward, I don't know how long that was, how many days that she may have came. Maybe he was having, you know, his, his nightly time at the the, the society of, of judges in Jerusalem, and they were all talking about this woman that was creating this scene. And for a while, he refused her. Hey, judge, what are you going to do about that lady who keeps crying out? Man, she's creating a scene. What are you going to do? 
Verse 4, for a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man. I mean, what a thing to say about yourself. <laughs> you know, I know this is a parable. This isn't a real guy. But, I mean, there are people like that in this world who are so arrogant. And, and I don't fear God. I don't respect people. I don't know many people that would say that, but there are a lot of people that live like that. And what does he say? Verse 5, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. That word beat me down is even more vivid than we translate it in English. It means literally, give me a black eye. This lady's going to pop me in the face if I don't do something. And so she wore him down. He says, she's going to give me a black eye, literally. And finally, he cries, uncle, and he gives in. And we don't know the details, but obviously, evidently, he, he decides her case for her favor. So what's the point of this parable? What's the point? Let's read what Jesus says in verses 6, 7, and 8. Again, Jesus gives us very scant details. He just sets the scene to show us the desperation, the grit of this persistent widow and this judge who decides to be gracious to her. In verse 6, Jesus says, And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So let's think about Jesus' answer there so that we can understand the primary point of this parable. Notice Jesus' logic. Very quickly, he takes this logical step from lesser to greater. And what I mean by that, he's saying that if this unrighteous judge is going to be gracious, if this woman who had zero chance with this kind of man, if she can find mercy with that type of situation, with that type of man, how much more so will God's people receive mercy from him? That's Jesus' logic here. If, you, if this woman gets justice from this unrighteous judge, how much more will God's elect receive justice from God, who is the righteous and good judge? And I want us to notice the language that Jesus uses there in the first part of verse 7. He says that will he not give justice to his elect? That's an important word. Because it points us to the deeper meaning, I think, of this parable. Who are the elect? The elect is a word used in the Bible to, to describe God's people. And it means those that God has chosen, those that God has set His love on, those that God has saved, those that God has justified from their sin. Because you see, friends, our real desper desperation, our real need Jesus, I think, quickly pivots us here. Our real need is not just those things out there, not just the injustices out there, but the injustices in our own heart. And when we stand before God the judge, we will need a deeper vindication from just our exterior problems. We will need an interior vindication because of our sin. 
And so he describes those who receive this justice from him, the good judge, as his elect people that God has saved. Listen to the description of the elect in Romans chapter 8. And I know you're going to kid me because we're still boomeranging back to Romans. But here we go. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Listen, listen to this description of God's people. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those, the elect, God's people, those whom He saved, those who are dead in their sins, and He has made alive, and He has forgiven their sins. Those, that's who those are. Verse 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified or vindicated. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. He concludes then, what then shall we say to these things in verse 31? 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. In other words, God gave Jesus for our sin to bear the wrath of God for our sin, to satisfy it, to extinguish it, to remove it. Then he made us alive. He took our dead hearts, gave us a new heart so that we could trust in Jesus for our plea before the judge, God. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. So you see the logic there? Paul is saying, connecting this to what Jesus is saying here about the elect and justice, is that if God in your dead state has made you alive, atoned for your sin through the sacrifices of His Son on the cross, if God the Son died for you so that you could be reconciled to God and He rose again in victory to atone for your sin and now He made you alive, He put His Spirit in you and He promises to bring you all the way home, how are all these little temporary things going to get in the way of stopping that? He will bring justice. He will complete the sentence. He will make sure it happens. I think that's what, what, what the parable is saying, what, what Jesus is saying about this man. Let's keep going. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? That's a rhetorical question, meaning those things will come being one of God's people, being one that God has saved, being one that God has elected, being one that God has vindicated, doesn't remove you from these earthly trials, but it promises you that God will make you persevere and he will finally and fully bring justice for you when he will vindicate you and bring you all the way home. And so we take that Bible power punch from, or gospel power punch from Paul in Romans 8, and we work it into this understanding of justice, what justice is for the elect. So already in this parable, the point of the parable is not necessarily that we need to pester God so that he will answer all of our earthly disputes. Although we should pray to God, of course we can. And we come to him and he hears us. 
But the point is grander than that. It's more eternal than that. He's wanting us to not lose heart. And he's wanting to lift our eyes and to show us that he, will vind- he has vindicated you because of your sin, and now he will vindicate all injustice in this world. So hang in there. Justice is coming. And he says to these people, they're those who the elect, God's people, they cry to him day and night. Think about this, that description of God's people. They cry to him day and night. So evidently, being a Christian isn't all like puppy dogs and lollipops. He describes his people whom he has died for, whom he has already glorified, but has left on this earth to suffer remaining injustices until that day when just injustice is finally and fully conquered. They cry to him day and night like this widow. And that's where some people in this room are. We, we, we're, life is messed up, man, because of, because of the, maybe the consequences and residue of sin on the inside or maybe the consequences and residue of sin that you're dealing with on the outside. You, you, you are in a desperate situation and you are tempted to lose heart and you are crying to him day and night and you're wondering, you're tempted to wonder whether or not God is good for his word, whether or not he's a good judge. And if that's where you are, don't be discouraged, I think is the point of this passage. You're in good company. This, is, this, this marks God's people. They cry to him day and night. Listen to Psalm 13. God actually writes this type of doubt into his word. Listen to Psalm 113, verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Let's personalize it. How long will this marriage teeter on the brink of destruction? How long will I have to suffer injustice at the hands of this authority figure in my life? How long, Lord, will I still wrestle with this remaining indwelling sin and go back like a dog to my vomit? How long, oh Lord, will you not do something? That's the cry of this widow. That's the cry of the psalmist. And that is the cry of God's elect. It is not foreign to the Christian experience to be left on this earth to cry out to God for final justice. In fact, it's part of the Christian life. And look what he says, the question he asks. Will he delay over them? The second half of verse 7. Will he delay over them? Now this word delay... Will he delay long over them is what he says. This word delay is, is very important. I think in the NIV version it says, will he keep putting them off? And we need to think carefully about what this word means and what, what it's saying in the context of this verse. It doesn't mean that God is not paying attention and that he is somehow, you know, otherwise occupied and they're waiting on him to you know, click in and start paying attention to their plight. It means that God is bearing patiently with them. 
In fact, the original word that we translate into delay long over them means to keep anger far away. So it's a kind of patience where God is keeping his judgment, his anger far away. This word is used in the New Testament and other places. Let me read to you some other places where it's used to give you a sense of what Jesus means by using the, that word here in, in verse 7. It's, it's, it's also in Romans 2 verse 4. This is what Paul says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, that word there, his patience, his, his anger this far away, his, his delay, his patient bearing with you. Do you presume on that, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, speaking of the days of Noah and those that were disobeying him, because it's picking up in verse 20, they formerly did not obey when God's patience, same word, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So God is, is keeping his judgment far away, waiting, wooing his people until their salvation is complete and they're on the ark. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient, same word, is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And what I think he means there by all contextually is not that God is up in heaven with a four-leaf clover just hoping he loves me, he loves me, not just hoping, wondering whether or not his people will come to him. No, we read Jesus' words in John 6 where he says that all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And we take that statement by Jesus in John 6, the certainty of salvation for all of God's people, and we put it together with 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, and we see that God in waiting is patiently waiting for all of his people. He's wooing. He is like a father who is dealing with a wayward child. He is the father in Luke 15 that is waiting for the prodigal son to come home, and he will not bring judgment. He will not close the gate until that son comes home. He is delaying long over them, not in ignorance, not in lack of love, but in grace. And in 1 Timothy 1, verse 16, we see it in the life of, of Paul. He says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. I mean, if, if God would have brought justice in Paul's life, think about Acts chapter, what is it, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 7, somewhere where Paul is consenting. At this time, he's called Saul in the Scriptures. And he's consenting to the stoning of Stephen. And if God would have brought justice then, think about where he would be. But God, knowing that Paul is one of his people, he's patient. He's bearing patiently over him until he comes. And I think contextually what's going on here in this parable is that God in his kindness is delaying the return of his son He's patiently holding him back, at which time he will execute his final and full justice, and his delay is his kindness. It's his kindness. 
And although we still will go through injustices here, we will still have to deal with all of these things, God in his kindness is using this delay to produce in his people more dependence on him or to bring them to faith for the first time. So think of it this way. Think about God's patient bearing. Think about his long delay over them as a kind of purposeful patience. That's what Jesus is is wanting to evoke, to call out of us by this parable, a purposeful patience. That God is waiting to bring full justice in the lives of his people for two reasons. And they fall into these categories. Either, number one, to bring in the full number of his people, the salvation of all of his children, or to bring about more sanctification in his children so that they will be a better example and a witness so that God would use their sanctification to bring about the salvation of all of his people that he's bringing home. Listen to, listen to what the scriptures has to say about how God uses our trials and struggles for his patience to work something in our lives to make us more like him while we long for that day. James 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it. Now this is, man, this is a verse we quote a lot, but come on now. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Friends, there's nothing, listen, if you are amongst God's people, there's nothing that you're going through that doesn't have a good and wise, gracious, fatherly purpose from God. Think about that. Right now, subordinate the most stressful thing in your life underneath the truth of James 1, 2 through 4. And say, I, God, I, I, can, I can stand in this. I can, in fact, even count it a joy knowing that this is producing in me something that's good for me so that you'd use my life greater for your glory while I live here on this earth. Man, you, you can fasten yourself to that. Acts 14, verse 22. Paul preaching the gospel. And he says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them, listen to this, to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Evidently, this has been a thing ever since the first century. And then listen to this obscure Baptist preacher from London in the mid-1800s. His name was Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Listen to this. I've read this before. I love this quote about the purposeful patience and sovereignty of God in our trials as we cry out to him for justice, and it seems like it's not coming. And we, along with the psalmist, cry, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Listen to how Spurgeon interprets all of those things under the good, sovereign providence of God. He says, From the right hand of God, our Lord Jesus rules all things here below and makes them work for the salvation of his redeemed. That's what Romans 8, 28 is saying, that all things work together for the good of those that love God. So Jesus is working as like the master engineer of all things. He's making it work together for the salvation of the redeemed. He's, 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 he's lifting our hands from this world. Let me just read Spurgeon's quote rather than interpret it. He uses both bitter and sweet things, trials and joys, that he may produce in sinners a better mind toward their God. 
Be thankful for the providence which has made you poor or sick or sad. <laughs> for by all this, Jesus works the life of your spirit and turns you to himself. The Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our hearts on the black horse of affliction. Jesus uses the whole range of our experience to wean us from the earth and woo us to heaven. And he does this as we are crying out, justice, oh Lord, how long will you forget me forever? Where, when will that husband come back? When will that teenage rebellion ch child turn? When will the sin that I'm still being beset by, when will I finally be rid of it? How long, oh Lord? How long? And he uses it all to woo us from ourselves, to wean us from ourselves and to woo us to him, friends, the purposeful patience of God. Now, finally, to verse 8, I tell you, he says, Jesus, he, meaning God the righteous judge, will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, and he puts it back on us now. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, and that's the context. This is an S, this is a, this is a end, of, end of time sort of prayer. This is, this is what the focus is in Luke 17 and 18 is the return of Christ. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He will give us justice speedily. But when we read that word speedily, let's remember that one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day, right? I'm still being sort of, uh, I'm, I'm still wrestling with the end of Romans, where in Romans chapter 16, Paul says that, and soon he will crush Satan under your feet. Soon. He wrote that 2,000 years ago. So soon, according to God's timetable, is often very different from mine. I need to submit my impatience to God's good wisdom and timing. But he will give us, in his kindness, justice speedily. Friends, the way I, the way I, the way I flesh that verse out, the way I, I flesh speedily and Satan being crushed soon in the lives of the saints, the way I flesh that out as I say, you know, these 80 or 90 years are but a drop in the bucket compared to eternity forever with him. And there will come a day when what I'm dealing with, what seems like forever now, will be just a snap of the fingers in God's timing. And I, 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 need, I need you to remind me of that because days can get long, can they not? And he says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, when Jesus returns, will we be like this widow, leaning forward, longing for justice, for his return? Will we be watchful? Listen to what the last few verses of the Bible says in Revelation 22, verses 20 and 21. This is the end of the Bible. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. So Jesus is commending us to, yes, be like this widow, but not so that we can have all of our temporary needs met but so that we would understand what true justice is and we would be able to interpret light, rightly the purposeful patience of God as we long for him to return. So what's the point of this parable? The point is not primarily 
that it pays to pester God because he will eventually respond out of disgust or that the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yes, we should be chastened by this widow and be more like her, but that's not the primary point. Rather, the point is that God, think about this in terms of discouragement and disheartened Christians, the point is that God has a people whom he has ransomed and reconciled to himself. And he promises to complete their vindication and bring full justice for all his people. Knowing this then, his people can come to him passionately even as they long for the day when he will set all things right. So how can we not lose heart? I'm just going to rattle off four quick thoughts and I'm done. How can we not lose heart? First, behold God, our good, sovereign Father. Parables like this give, a, give us a, a correct picture of the goodness of God. If this unrighteous judge could give mercy, how much more can God give mercy? To know that he will vindicate his children. Every single one of them, final and full vindication will happen for all of his people. He will bring them all safely home. They will all be justified. They will all be glorified. Nothing can bring any, no one can bring any charge against God's elect. What can separate them from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? Nothing in all creation. Not one of them will not make it to the ark. Not one of them. Jesus will complete his mission. He will bring all of them home. They will all be vindicated. And that, if you're trusting in Jesus, includes you. And the most difficult thing that you're dealing with right now will seem like pixie dust in the glory of that day. Which leads us to the third point is that we because of that, can trust the purposeful patience of God. And that may be where most of us are, trust, trusting the purposeful patience of God. As we persist in our coming to Him, we can trust that He is bringing about our good. And finally, we can pray and should pray for Jesus' return. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Have you ever been in such a moment of despair? This has happened many times in my office through tears where somebody whose life is falling apart will say to me, you know, Brad, it'd be wonderful if Jesus came back right now. Have you ever been there? Friends, that's actually a good place to be. To be where you have no other options but Jesus Christ and his return. That's how we should live our lives. May it not take despair to get us there, but may we be like this all of our days. Are you not yet a believer? You need to trust in Jesus. Judgment is coming. Judgment that is far away will come and it will be close. And what will be your plea on that day? Your plea cannot be your goodness. It cannot be your morality. It can't be your good intentions. Your only plea, your only hope is Jesus. Turn from trusting in yourself and put your hope in him and say, Jesus, 
I trust what you have done for me on the cross to be my only, my only plea before a holy, righteous judge. I believe in what you've done. I'm putting my hope in what you've done, in your death for sin, in your victorious resurrection. I'm trusting in that as my plea before the judge rather than my own righteousness. Do that now. Put your hope in him and be amongst God's elect. Let's pray. Lord, strengthen your disheartened people. Lift up our eyes so that we might see the goodness of our God. Help us to wisely interpret your patience, your long delay. Let us trust in your full and final vindication. And we pray, Lord, as Jesus is instructed, come quickly, Lord Jesus. When you come again, may we be leaning forward into eternity, desperate for you. Do this, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.